0: Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing good. I want to let our listeners know we had a big sort of thing about how we were hustling. What was the phrase that we used about making sure uh, we had power the podcast tree. done? powering through. You made an emergency run to Best Buy to buy a <laughs> mini-USB cable. Longtime listeners, close listeners will recall, I made a similar sojourn when I was staying in Silicon Valley, and I couldn't find one. I went to a Target, I went to a Best Buy, I went to Fry's, and couldn't find one anywhere. You did, though, successfully find one, and congratulations to you. Thank you for powering through. Back in my hotel room in 15
1: minutes, in a strange city. I'm recording from Austin, no less, but if there's any weird background noise that anyone can here, as they're listening on my end. There's a death metal band playing outside my window of my hotel room right now. So <laughs> welcome to Austin and apologies for the extra noise that you're getting to listen today. I'm hearing nothing now.
0: So fingers crossed. But okay. good thing you were able to use a dynamic mic and not the emergency condenser when you bought because that actually would have been a big problem.
1: Yeah, I was worried about that. But
0: we seem to be in good shape. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, first off, Our last podcast was sort of a different tone. We got a ton of really positive feedback about that and just wanted to sort of acknowledge that and appreciate all the notes that we received. Yes, it
1: was really touching. It had been a bit of a rough time and the outpouring of support and really nice messages and tweets and everything. It was incredibly touching. I'm incredibly grateful. It sounds like you received it as well. It was just really, really nice. So everyone, thank you. Very good. Well, the show must go on, as they say. It's true. But on the subject of shows going on, I think congratulations are actually in order. Ah, yes, it has been quite the week. This is not the only podcast I've been recording. Sorry, James, I've been cheating on you. Oh my gosh, not at all. It's very exciting, but I'm not going to steal your thunder. Why don't you explain what I'm referring to?
0: Yes, for people that only listen to this podcast and don't follow (laughs) Shashakari. First off, shame on you. No, not really. Second, the way I should put it. No, let me put it in strategic terms. I get it. You prefer listening to podcasts as opposed to reading, you know, long tomes. So I launched a new product this week to meet you where you are. I launched the Shashakari Daily Update podcast, which I'm not trying to oversell it here. It is literally me reading the Daily Update. (laughs) So it's like, there's not extra conversation. There's not a guest. If you prefer to listen as opposed to read a 2,000-word email, I will now read it to you. It's, it's a little more involved in that. Um, my associate, Duman, is helping me like reading block quotes and stuff, so it's easier to follow. I try to do the best job possible. I mean, Strikery is a written product, first and foremost. But how could you take a written product and make it easier to consume on the go? That's sort of the goal of this product. And yeah, launch this week. It's very exciting.
1: That is super exciting. I mean, obviously your writing is fantastic, but there are a group of people out there who perhaps they engage with content like this while they're commuting. It's not just they want to listen to podcasts. It's some folks. It's the only option is to engage with spoken versus written word. They have time when they're driving their car. And while I have seen a couple of people read a book while drive a car before, it's not something that (laughs) I'd necessarily recommend. Same with phones, but the podcast. The podcast format seems to lend itself very well to the work that you do.
0: Yeah, for sure. I always got a lot of feedback that strategically sort of fit in people's routines, right? And it was like, oh, I read over coffee in the morning or I read on the subway. And I think what is you know potentially attractive about this is there's more routines to sort of fit into. And commuting is certainly a major use case there. It's going to be a bit time zone specific. I mean, I publish around 7 a.m. Eastern time, but it takes a couple hours for the podcast to be produced and to come out. So for the West Coast, it should definitely work out very well in that regard. But hey, afternoon commute, We, we have to go home too, right? Absolutely.
1: It's oftentimes that it's not, this isn't like wire-based news, like it's still fresh and
0: relevant a few hours later. So yeah, either way to work or not. I mean, it's something that I thought about for a long time. It's sort of an obvious product, right? I mean, people like podcasts, you know, just for all the obvious reasons that it's attractive to folks. I think a limitation to date was sort of just on the tooling perspective. You know, one thing that I learned with Shotecry that was super valuable was the email, that's an inbox, that's a feed that people already check every day. And so being able to be in that feed is super valuable. I used to get a lot of questions, fewer these days, but I used to get a lot of questions. Why don't you watch an app? When is this checkery app coming out? It's like, well, it's not coming out. Why would I want to have an app that requires people to go out of their way to read me when I can be in a place they are already at and can already check. That's extremely valuable. A downside, of course, is, you know, it's not protected. Anyone could forward the email. It could be sent to a group inbox, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not recommending these things, by the way. <laughs> and we kind of know when that happens. So don't do it, but it's a worthwhile trade off to make as sort of an independent producer. I'm not going to compete with Facebook and Twitter for your attention on your phone. The opportunity to be in an open environment as long as you invite me in is very, very attractive and is worth sort of the bleed off as far as you know piracy goes, et cetera.
1: Oh, this feels like a classic example of like you eating our own medicine, which is the complaints that we had about the music industry. And they were worried about piracy first, as opposed to creating a great user experience. And they do that. And it only encourages piracy more. You give people a great user experience and you make it easy for them to consume. That's exactly what they're going to do.
0: That's right. But I think the thing that always concerned me about the podcast angle is it's work to like forward an email every day. You have to consciously choose to be a jerk and share my email on like a regular basis, right? It's a little bit different when it comes to a podcast because the nature of RSS is kind of set and forget. So if you sort of got your buddy passed you a podcast feed and you added it to your app and then you just keep getting the podcast, you never really think about it. So I think people are mostly by and large, well-intentioned, you know, people are happy to support. I mean, obviously there's some folks that don't. And to your point, it's not worth sacrificing the user experience for all your your customers just to get you worried about a few bad apps. Apples. But it's much easier to sort of be an accidental bad apple in a world of like RSS. And so the big thing that I was sort of waiting to figure out was how do you solve that problem? And I was kind of stuck on you know the app thing. Like an app makes sense. You have total control of the experience. But again, for all the reasons... You just mentioned, you know, an app someone has to go to. Oh, and if it's an app, then you have to pay the Apple tax. And so there's real reasons not to go in that direction. And what sort of happened over the last year is folks have started to really figure out how you can do this with the open podcast system. So the big breakthrough was Patreon, for example, has protected podcasts, but you have to go in there and you have to copy this ugly URL. You have to go to your podcast player and you have to do add your URL, which is a different place in every app if it exists at all. And then you have to paste it in. It's too hard. The user experience just, it's too messy. It's too difficult. The support costs would be astronomical to do that. And so a big breakthrough was this idea of, well, all these operating systems have schemes to sort of pass URLs back and forth. So if you subscribe to checkery you go there, you click, Click your favorite podcast player, like Overcast. You click Overcast, and it Imports that feed into Overcast. You just click a button. Do you want to add this feed? You click yes. And it's so much more seamless and easier than the sort of copy and paste routine. So that was sort of like part one. And then part two was actually building the backend service to sort of keep track of fees, to monitor things. The thing I'm most worried about is less the sort of like sharing with your friends sort of thing. I mean, you shouldn't do that, but you know, you can't. What are you going to do? It's the, like someone posts on Reddit and suddenly you have like 5,000 <laughs> subscribers on a private feed. Like, what do you do then? And so, Some functionality we built was, so you can reset it. So the the token is sort of you know denied and, and they can't access anymore. But then we actually insert a podcast into that feed, which tells them what happened. Say, oh, you just want to let you know this feed got leaked or whatever. Please go back to the site and resubscribe. And so you can like sort of communicate with them where they're at. Again, this is sort of the broader idea is meeting people where they want you to be instead of forcing them to sort of consume your content on your terms. Can you give them your content on terms
1: that work for them? It's so cool. I feel like in the same way that the newsletter kind of was approaching new territory for independent content producers, feels like we're starting to feel out the new world, the same model, but
0: in podcasts as well. Yeah, well, that's definitely the idea because what's so attractive about this is people, you know, especially people that are used to listening to podcasts, they already have a podcast player that they check regularly, right? So it's the same thing as email where you can go to where they are. Again, it required building in the right tooling on the back end to make it possible, but you can go to where they are instead of forcing them to download a separate app or whatever the case might be. This is a real reason why open ecosystems are so great and so attractive, right? Email is attractive because it's available to anyone. It's open. No one controls it. Same thing with podcasts. It's open and available to anyone. No one controls it. At least for now. Yes, that's true.
1: And I just love the idea of you doing the acrobatics in the background rather than making the customer do the acrobatics. It's just common sense, but it's so easy to slip into the trap of not doing that.
0: For sure. And you know what's interesting is the openness is part of why podcasts have been sort of hard to monetize, right? I mean, because from an advertising perspective, I think we've talked about this before you know, the dominant advertisers on podcasts are all these either super high dollar products like mattresses or products with a very high lifetime values like domain registration, right? You have to do a lot of work to get something. You have, to, you have coupon codes, you have to coordinate, you have to track people, you have to see if your ad was read correctly. The investment required for podcast advertising is quite high, which means the return has to be correspondingly high as well. And it doesn't work very well for the vast majority of advertisers where their ability to invest on a per subscriber basis is, Is much lower. And so they need a return. They don't need as high of a return, but they need the investment to be much lower. And so this is something that Spotify is obviously spending a lot of time and attention on because Apple is the obvious player here, but they've declined to sort of pursue this opportunity. And so Spotify is sort of going for it full force. They've acquired companies. And what people need to appreciate, I think, is Spotify is acquiring podcast companies not for exclusive content. I mean, they will have some exclusive content. Like there's multiple benefits to this approach. But the big opportunity I think that they're seeing is the opportunity to sort of build an advertising engine around podcasting generally. But to do so, that entails having people on their platform. So like they just launched an advertising product last year where it's like internet advertising, where you get an advertisement that's customized to you and that's sort of inserted in real time, which works because they're streaming it, right? They're not downloading a discrete podcast that works normally. It's all streaming. And so they have much more dynamic control of the feed and they're able to pull that off because they have 270 million daily active users or, or monthly active users or whatever it is. So it's a classic aggregator approach. They have this big user base. They've got that user base in music and now they're taking that user base into podcasting and attempting to use that to sort of gain control of the market generally. And it's interesting. I wrote about this in the daily that yesterday. My analyst, Ben, is like, makes total sense. Super smart, much higher margin than podcasting, especially in, in advertising. It's a way to really grow their business. Particularly from a bottom line perspective, in a way they just can't in music because the music labels will sort of extract all the profit out of the value chain. So, in this case, it's actually very clever. They use music to get the massive user base, then they leverage that user base to act as an aggregator in the podcast space. It makes all kinds of sense. But But here. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, like the two of us, it's like,
1: yeah, after 180 something conversations with you, letting an aggregator get between you and your customers doesn't sound like the smartest thing to do for a content creator. That's right. And so like that's why Exponent has never been on Spotify. Except it has. It has. And I didn't put it there. Someone else put it there. I know. Again, this is the downside to openness, right? I think, did they not just pick up the feed and put it on there and assume we were okay with it? No, they can't pick up
0: these because part of it, the reason they want to have the ability to manipulate your feed, it'll put stuff in there in the future to feature it, whatever, which means they need a legal agreement. So if you want a podcast on Spotify, you have to go to Spotify as a podcaster. You have to agree to this 15 page legal agreement or whatever it is. And then you put your feet in and then they'll pull the fee like any other podcast. But that agreement is critical. They won't have any podcast on there without that agreement. And I never agreed to that agreement. I'm curious who signed it for us. I suspect a fan just put it up there. It's funny because I would always tweet, it's not on Spotify. And then suddenly it was, you know, it's not on Spotify anymore. It has now been addressed. And it's interesting because that's actually bad for exponent. We had a long conversation about this, or we've talked about this previously. Exponent as sort of an independent entity, why wouldn't we be on Spotify? Particularly if we had advertising, right? You want to reach more people and you can see the economic incentives for any sort of supplier, content supplier. It's to be on the platform with all the users. It's appealing. Right. This is how aggregators work. That's why all the publishers went on to Facebook. That's why they all go on to Google, because that's where all the users are. And then what happens? Well, the long, long run, obviously, we know the problem. In the medium run, though, it's actually also good. You can see Spotify building up this advertising engine. And then right now it's for Spotify's own podcasts, right? And that's a reason for them to acquire these podcasts is they can develop, right? We're in the early stage. We're being fully integrated is an advantage in building new features, right? This idea of auto inserting ads, for example, based on the listener. That's much easier when you control the entire stack. But you can see a few years down the line where they open that up to third parties where they can say, do you agree to have Spotify do the ads for your show? Say, yes, I agree. And then they take care of all of it. And if they are successful in building this out and having a centralized place for advertisers to go where it's easy to track, easy to measure, all those sorts of things, they could monetize much better than any podcast can monetize on their own. And again, the incentive for podcasts to go onto Spotify becomes even stronger. Right. But keep going. (laughs) Well, in the long run, once you're totally dependent and beholden on Spotify, Spotify will make lots of money from advertising. That advertising will be spread out over more and more podcasts, which means sort of the monetization per podcast is probably going to decrease because advertisers don't care about podcasts. They care about users. Spotify doesn't care about individual podcasts. They care about the users and the advertising broadly, just like what happened with the web, right? Right. Google will advertise across every site and any individual site starts to lose sort of agency and pricing power.
1: Yeah. Or Facebook and news sources. Like the valuable thing is the aggregator and everything else that supplies them becomes commoditized. And you don't want to move in that direction if you have a choice in it.
0: That's right. So if you're a large podcast right now, you have pricing power because, you know, if you're like Bill Simmons, for example, he's acquired by Spotify. So let's use something like Joe Rogan. The reason why he can make so much money is because if you want on one shot to hit a few million people, which I, I don't know how many subscribers he has, but it's a lot. Like you can just go to this one podcast, right? Who has time and energy to try to gobble up like 20 different podcasts that will add up to a million? No, just go to the one guy with a lot, but. If that entire system is sort of automated, then you don't care who has a lot of listeners and who doesn't have a lot of listeners because it'll be spread out over everyone. This is how advertising works on the web. Yes, some very, 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 very large sites can sell for just their properties, but by and large, no one is large enough to make it worth advertisers' while. They'll just go to a third-party advertising network, which will basically ignore the site that it's advertising on and just advertise to specific users across those sites. That's what Spotify is angling for in the long run. Mm. And again, like you said, makes perfect
1: sense. Doesn't mean that as content creators, we should buy into it. And particularly, you know,
0: this is a problem, not just for individual podcasts, but also for this model that I want to do the sort of the paid podcast, the paid podcast possibility relies on me being able to have a direct connection with my customers. So that's just not from a payment perspective, but also that whole, you know, you click a button and it adds the feed to your app that is them directly adding me to their app. It's not a player in the middle. And Spotify is not going to add that functionality,
1: nor are they going to add like checking tokens. They're not supporting the open thing. And it's great for them because their priority is the user. And that makes sense. They should prioritize that. But given they're not prioritized on the podcast creators in the same way, it means that functionality is not going to be there. And if wholesale, everyone moves over to Spotify to listen to podcasts, that would make it challenging for what you just described to exist, right?
0: That's exactly right. Like by far the number one complaint that I have about the Streckery Daily Update podcast is I can't use it in Spotify. And uh, the second one is I can't use it in Google Podcasts, which a lot of Android users use. And Google Podcasts, it's the exact same thing. If they want to sit in the middle. There is no way to arbitrarily add feeds. As a podcaster, you have to go to Google Podcasts and put your podcast in the service and agree to their terms, and then they will make it available to users. And why? Because Google's an advertiser. They want to own the sort of advertising business there. So... It's not that I don't want to support Spotify or I don't want to support Google Podcasts or Stitcher. I literally cannot. And again, I'm not mad at Spotify or Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Like They're making, I think, what is a smart, strategic move for their business. And when I wrote about it yesterday, I'm like, there's three characters here. There is Analyst Ben, there's Podcaster Ben, and there's Publisher Ben. Analyst Ben thinks it's very smart. Publisher Ben is incentivized to go on there because I want to reach as many people as possible. But Publisher Ben has to keep in mind, what is my business model? And my business model in what is critical to working in a world downed by aggregators is you have to build direct connections with customers. And that means occasionally doing things that your customers don't like because it's bad for sort sure of the long term sustainability of your business. And from my perspective, for my business, being on Spotify is one of those. Yeah.
1: I'd even make an argument or part of that argument, even for podcasts, Ben, but I guess let's leave that. Actually, I have another question I want to ask. All this extra value of having the podcast read out to you every morning or every afternoon, depending on where you are, on your daily commute or at the gym or however you'd like to listen to it, how much extra are you going to be charging folks for this, Ben?
0: Nothing, James. Same price for everyone. (laughs) Thank you for that leading question. Of course. My pleasure. I don't want to overpromise. It's like, it's not extra content. It's the exact same content, just in a different format. I think this will be worth it to me in a few different ways. One, I think it will reduce churn because I think one of the big reasons why people do churn out is they actually find the amount of content overwhelming and they look at their inbox and they have like 25 unread emails from me and they're like, I'm not getting value out of this. So ironically, for those people, I should write less. But I think this is a way for people to consume my content more regularly, become even more of a habit. I've actually heard from, again, it's anecdotal, but I've heard from a fair number of people that have already resubscribed who gave up for that reason. Like, Oh, this is just gonna be so much easier for me to sort of keep up and consume. So that's going to be a benefit. Another benefit is this idea of podcasts are really great for connecting with people, right? People hear you in your ear. They feel connection with you. And that connection, again, that's the most valuable thing to me as a small independent media company competing in this world of big aggregators, right? You want to be individualized and a brand's not the right word. You want to have a relationship. And podcasts are really, really good for fostering that. And so just broadly to the point I started with, just meet people where they are, right? The more you can do to go where people are at and just by definition, that's what increases your market instead of making people jump through hoops because they want to get what you have. Sounds good. Oh, well,
1: congrats again. I know it's not easy. I mean, it sounds easy, launch a podcast, but as the point was made, there's acrobatics on the back end. And from the little insight or the little chat we had while you were going through this, it didn't sound like some of the acrobatics were altogether easy, as I'm sure it is often the case when you're doing something entrepreneurial. So congratulations on the launch. I think it's awesome.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. There are services in this space that's kind of exploded in the last year. I think the four that I'm aware of are Glow, Supporting Cast, Supercast, and Red Circle. But a challenge I had in agreeing with them, I explored that option. And by and large, my recommendation for anyone, you should always use a third-party service. Like, don't build stuff yourself. That's not your competitive advantage. Your competitive advantage is the content you create and let other people take care of the problems. The problem is that I already adopt that philosophy as far as the membership management on my site goes. And all these folks are sort of assume they live by themselves and I felt that introducing dueling membership systems, even though they were building sort of integrations between the two, so they'd stay in sync, it introduced a level of complexity that I was uncomfortable with, like having my customer base in two places and syncing back and forth. So that was one of the biggest concerns. There were some additional advantages. There's obviously a money advantage. I mean, I have to pay for those ones. I'd have to pay a fair bit more than I pay for my current membership service on a per subscriber basis. And I've already gotten enough subscribers in the first 36 hours that from a financial perspective, doing it myself was definitely a Win. This is more interesting, on, I think, on a broader level, which is I've written about sort of the faceless publisher and this idea like, you know, Substack or these other companies that do all the infrastructure for content creators. The real challenge, and this is one of the reasons I was a little skeptical about Substack raising the amount of VC money they did, is that the people that will make you a lot of money are the people that get a huge amount of subscribers. But people who get a huge amount of subscribers by definition, have the most ability to sort of go around you and to sort of build their own service if you become too expensive. And I think this is a real example here where all these podcast companies are getting off the ground and they're charging, you know, 50, 60 cents per subscriber per month or whatever the rate might be. And if you're at a certain scale and you have sort of the capability to build your own thing, that adds up sort of pretty quickly. It does. I mean, the obvious answer to my mind
1: listening to you say that is that they need to adjust their pricing model as you start to serve people at scale, then you start to drop the per-user fee as opposed to keep it flat all the way up. But I'm sure as they pick up small folks who turn into big folks and they grow together, they'll
0: probably figure that out. Yeah, for sure. And to be clear, that's not a reason to do it. My biggest reason to do it was, like, you should pay for someone to do this. It's bad for you to do for yourself. I was worried about the complexity of double-user bases. My user information is super important to me. It's the most valuable thing that I have. Sort of like my list, duplicating that and having it try to keep in sync. Wasn't comfortable with that. The financial aspect was sort of a side note that I thought was just worth interesting. The other thing is I can build it expressly for me. Like there's certain features and stuff that are in there that fits my use case. But yeah, it's cool. It's it's exciting. Software is always challenging to launch, particularly in an open ecosystem. Like we had a big problem with a particular podcast player because it was an older podcast player that had been around a long time and they sort of made assumptions about feeds. And we had too many of the initial characters in like our feed were the same. So they thought they were all the same feed. Like It was just weird, weird bugs that you encounter. But I think we've mostly gotten through most of them and things should be good going forward. Awesome. All right. That was probably too much detail. Yeah, so if you want to subscribe, you go to Checkery. You have to subscribe to the daily update. It's included with the daily updates. No, you can't just get one or the other because again, it's the same thing, it's just two different formats. And then you can take a listen. But Exponent is different. Exponent is your and my thing. It will remain free. It's not going to be out of paywall. It's not going anywhere. So you know, folks can enjoy both. Great. I did want to talk. Um, if we can sort of like shift gears. I did want to talk a bit about the article that I wrote last week. Mm-hmm. This was one of those experiences where I suddenly looked up and realized I'd been sort of in a ditch of my own making for kind of going on years. And I worried that I was making a big mistake. And it was a mistake that I saw increasingly being reflected by lots of people sort of around me, generally speaking. And so it's something I wrote about, I would love to talk about here on the podcast, if you are amenable to it. Let's do it. When would the answer to that ever be no? (laughs) I appreciate it. So, We've talked plenty of times about the Facebook acquisition of Instagram that I can understand why it happened. I can understand why it was approved. It was this company with no money, 30 million users, you know, like we see acquisitions all the time. Yet, I think it had a really devastating impact on sort of competition in the consumer space generally. And the reason goes back to the advertising point. Facebook became even more so than it was, a one-stop shop for advertisers where you can reach anyone from any age group, any demographic. They sort of inoculated themselves from Snapchat just because, yes, maybe Snapchat was a little bit better at reaching high schoolers or college-age students or whatever it might be, but Instagram was also very good. And if you were already on Facebook, you just click a box and you could also be on Instagram. And advertisers never really had to develop the capability of serving multiple social networks or multiple places because you could master Facebook and master Google and you'd basically be set. And you see that playing out where the biggest advertisers like a Nike or whatever, they'll be on Snapchat because they're sophisticated enough to handle that. But everything sort of the long tail is only on Google or Facebook. And it makes total sense. Why would you spend the expertise and the energy to want to serve different advertisers? advertisers if you didn't need to. Facebook reaches everyone and to the extent that young people don't use the Facebook app, well, they're definitely on Instagram. And so it was I think it was problematic not just for how big and powerful it made Facebook, but how much it sort of constricted development in the advertising ecosystem that by second, third order effect, limited the number of new consumer companies that were advertising based. Yeah, 100%. It's a classic 80-20. For
1: smaller players, if they can spend 20% of the effort and get 80% of the reward, they'll do it. And yeah, your Nike's going to spend the extra 20% oh, 80% of the effort to get 20% of the reward because they're optimized and they're not resource constrained, but most other people aren't going to do that. That's right. And so I, I regret the acquisition. And I've written about this. And I've spoken about this. Actually, I want to interrupt. Do you regret the acquisition or you only regret it in
0: retrospect? So I wasn't writing trajectory at the time. So I don't have an article to point to, but I do have a tweet. I think what happened was I should look the tweet up, but I believe that Microsoft acquired the remains of like AOL which included Netscape. And they closed that acquisition on the same day that Facebook acquired Instagram. And I wrote a tweet at the time saying, isn't it ironic or isn't it interesting or telling that Microsoft acquired Netscape the same day that Facebook acquired Instagram? You know, The implication is it was a similar sort of anti-competitive killing competition sort of move. Obviously, the Microsoft one happened 20 years after it actually mattered, but that was the point. And so to my mind, it was pretty clearly going to be a big problem. I think it was Eric Jackson wrote a great piece in Forbes, wherever it was saying the same thing. And we'll put that in the show notes and very, very prescient So saying like Facebook is sewing up the whole sort of consumer advertising market with this purchase. And it's a big problem at the same time. That took a fair amount of understanding the dynamics of network effects, how they're going to grow, understanding the advertising network, understanding why when Instagram says we're not monetizing today, so we're not really competitive, how that was obviously (laughs) farcical in the long run because advertising was the only possible business model in the long run. But from a regulator perspective, those are a lot of judgment calls to make, and there's not a lot of evidence to necessarily support them if you were you know hauled in front of a judge to justify that decision. Totally. I asked that
1: question. I think that question will end up becoming important later on in the conversation, but
0: please carry on. So it's one of those things where I look back and it's a shame this happened, I think, for the tech ecosystem broadly. The concern that I have, though, and this is the ditch that I was in, it's so easy to think about acquisitions and to think about this one acquisition that was, you know, I think bad for competition. But that is focusing on the one at the expense of. The, you know, thousands and thousands of other acquisitions that happen. And if you start saying, Oh, look at this example. We should ban acquisitions or we should severely curtail acquisitions. You run the risk of choose your cliche, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, killing the golden goose. And I think that's a very, very real concern. It sort of shocked me last week when the FTC said they're going to start reviewing all these acquisitions that were like sub $90 million acquisitions. It's like, whoa, like, what are you doing? Like, It's actively bad if you were to ever do anything about these. We can get into the details why. But, you know, Facebook was smart enough to pay a billion dollars for Instagram. If anything, the acquisitions you look at are the ones that seem wildly expensive because they know what they're doing, right? They knew what they were buying. Facebook is not paying $50 million to acquire a company that if they didn't acquire it, would go on to challenge Facebook. That makes perfect sense. Maybe this is the
1: complete skeptic or cynic in me. But like when I saw that news, I really felt that this had a little bit of a tinge of political motivation to it as well. Well,
0: I can't imagine why you'd get that from recent behavior as far as, you know, the antitrust goes. I mean, I think the cases that have been prosecuted seem to follow no real rhyme or reason, but do follow rhyme or reason if it thinks about who the president has grudges against. And that's not a partisan statement, it's just sort of an analytical statement. Yeah, I don't know. In some respects, it was maybe a bullish signal for Silicon Valley that the FTC can't really find anything problematic in what's out there. And so they're phishing. But to be very, very clear, there's real benefit from big tech companies buying smaller tech companies, just like it's worth talking about how Facebook really does enable new kinds of companies to exist because of their advertising model. Like there's lots of companies that grow up on Facebook, lots of apps that would never be able to afford TV advertising or or newspaper advertising would not be effective. Like it enables a new kind of advertising that enables a new kind of company. And I think we don't spend enough time talking about that. It's not just that. That's a
1: rationale for the value of Facebook or Google. And like, don't get me wrong. All of them sometimes do things that you and I disagree with and sometimes disagree with vehemently, but it really started to come home for me in the context of the conversation that we had. I can't remember the name of your article, but when you basically drew the parallel between the tech companies effectively becoming the equivalent of GM and Ford, and we're here with them to stay. And if that's the case, there's no way that some of these smaller tech companies are going to be able to gain access to the market short of these big tech
0: companies coming along and acquiring them. That's exactly right. And well, there's a few angles to that. So one is. If you can take what you just said from a consumer welfare perspective, when these big tech companies acquire a technology or a new feature and implement it, it's instantly available to hundreds of millions or literally billions of people, right? So the speed with which tech can become diffused is rapidly sort of accelerated. But that in turn creates value and
1: someone's paying for it, which encourages VCs to support entrepreneurs who are doing things that might not otherwise be able to get to market, except if one of these big tech companies
0: acquire. Why is it? That's exactly right, particularly like very risky technical breakthroughs, like a new kind of chip or something. Like, why is it that it's not enough that you just create something new? No, you also have a go-to-market plan. You have to build a business and make like, it's like making the challenge five times harder, right? It's not just enough that you make something new. You have to also have to be able to build a business. And it's like, well, yes, building a business is good and important, but I want investment and I want risk-taking in features too, in like new components and new chips. You shouldn't have to be able to build a new phone company that competes with Apple just because you want to invent a new processor. And that didn't happen. PASMI spent a lot of time and money building a new processor, and then Apple acquired them and to all of our tremendous benefit. We now have much better processors in our phones. Or contrast that with
1: Andy Rubin's latest effort. And this is obviously a very talented guy and understands the phone market very well. He created Android and it's gone on to great success, had frustrations, I feel like primarily with features of existing phones and how they were presented, but tried to do the whole thing alone. And unsurprisingly, that did not work out too well for him.
0: That's right. And this goes back to you know what I wrote at sort of the end of the beginning, which is, you know, if we're at a place where because of the dynamics of network effects and ecosystems where we're going to have sort of Android and iOS be mostly dominant in mobile and to the extent that AR comes along or the extent that similar You know, watches and wearables come along where they sort of attach to your phone because the phone has all the commute and has the connectivity, and you can build something lighter weight, you know, on your body. That's sort of the obvious way for this stuff to be built. Well, that means that we're going to have those ecosystems be dominant, which means to say that you have to compete with Android or compete with Apple to come to market. Like the end result is new technologies that are invented just never come to market. And same thing on sort of the cloud side. Like if we assume that we're going to have AWS and Amazon globally, and yes, Cloudflare, you know, can certainly compete with them. They're But to say that they can't acquire, you know, like Amazon acquired a chip company of their own. And now that capability is broadly available to anyone using AWS. I struggle to see how that's a problem. And in fact, I can see how blocking that would actually be very detrimental broadly.
1: Well, worse yet, like if these are really good ideas, if there's one thing that these big tech companies have demonstrated is that they've mostly gotten over not invented here syndrome. If they're not able to buy it and it's truly something that would benefit their customers, they're just going to copy it. And if you're one of these small little tech companies trying to create this new technology, now trying to bring it to market and now trying to win a lawsuit against one of these monster giants that have this patent portfolio that would be enough to knock out another monster giant, let alone poor little you as a tech startup, it's making the probabilities of success or some positive outcome for them
0: even more remote. Right. And I don't know, I can see how this, people can listen to this and feel like we're being very fatalistic here. Like the big companies will be here forever. No, it's not saying that. What it's saying is we have a proven system right now that works very, very well in generating sort of new breakthroughs and diffusing them to the market. And also there's good incentives in place to try to build new things. You want to go build a company, go ahead. You try to build a new business model, go ahead. You figure out a to go to market strategy, go ahead. And if you fail, then Google acquires you for $50 million and you have a soft landing into a job at Google. And then you sit around for two years, you sort of vest, you collect your money and then you go out and you do it again. Right. Like that's the other thing about this FTC investigation is all these sub $100 million acquisitions are failed companies, right? We can have a discussion about the company that's acquired for in you know, the like the billion dollar range, like Instagram was or the $15 billion, like double click, like no one invests in a company or starts a company with the goal of exiting at $50 million, at least not in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Like Those are failed companies. And the fact that big companies can acquire them actually makes it more likely that we'll have more attempts at more companies from an investor side, from a startup employee side, and from an entrepreneur side. Yeah. and
1: I mean, if you really want to support an ecosystem that will result in someone eventually coming along and threatening the giants, Allowing there to be lots of companies exiting into the giants, meaning that folks don't lose their money, meaning that VCs are willing to back this, meaning that entrepreneurs are willing to give it a shot. You've got a richer environment from which a potential disruptor will actually emerge and come along and threaten these incumbents that we have right now.
0: Yeah. And so this is sort of like the ditch that I was in is, you know, it's very easy to sort of just think endlessly about this Instagram acquisition, right? But you run the risk because of that of overcorrecting. And that overcorrection could be really, really devastating. And frankly, will only entrench the biggest players. You're going to accomplish the opposite of your goal because to your point, you're going to have less people taking the risks and challenges in the long run to beat them. Like, And we need to be very clear out about this. You can agree or disagree with me about the end of the beginning idea, but we should definitely all agree, no one's going to build a search engine that's going to take down Google, all of the paradigm upsetting things that have come along, the disruptive things, are new paradigms. Sorry, I kind of <laughs> mixed up my words there. But the phone is what allowed Apple to overtake Microsoft. Apple didn't overtake Microsoft on the PC. Microsoft is still dominant. Same thing with mainframes. IBM still dominates mainframes. The extent that they're not dominant in the industry is because a different form factor, a different paradigm came along. So like people are like, oh, how do we compete with Google and Facebook? Well, you compete with Google and Facebook by having a new paradigm come along. That's the only way that they're going to be disrupted, which means you need more startups pursuing that, more going after that. And yes, might Facebook or Google buy them? They might, but we need to be very, very careful that in the interest of trying to stop one thing, we don't sort of completely kill the other. I grant you everything you just
1: said and 100% agree. The fact is, what do we do about Instagram and acquisitions like Instagram? Like, okay, the opposite of throwing the baby
0: out with the bathwater is do nothing. What are your thoughts there? So first off, I don't think we do anything on Instagram. I think, Trying to retroactively go back to an acquisition that happened a decade ago is deeply problematic for lots of reasons. I think one, it really sort of upsets the idea of the rule of law. Like if you can change the rules retroactively going back that far, I just think it's bad for confidence generally. It's bad for investing. It's bad for mergers. It's bad for, I just think it's a bad idea. So this is interesting. Like one thing that solves the problems is, you know, well, we didn't know at the time, but we can go back and sort of fix it. Right. That way we don't kill the innovation goose. So we let most of them go through. And if something's a problem, we go back. Going to do it. I have a bit of a problem with that. And I think this might be where we might disagree a little bit, but take the the Instagram example. Like, one, it was a decade ago, right? If you invest and make decisions, again, it's not just the billion dollars spent on Instagram, it's the many. Billions of dollars spent since then on making Instagram better and acquiring users and building this monetization engine. If that all gets thrown away or taken away because of a rule change 10 years after the fact, like that seems very broadly speaking, not amenable with the idea of the rule of law. Like you can change the rules retroactively. And again, it sort of discounts and overlooks the very real investments that Facebook made implicit in my argument about Instagram and the ecosystem of Instagram were not a part of Facebook is that Instagram is far more powerful and far more successful by virtue of being a part of Instagram. And you can't look at Instagram as it is today and presume it would be the exact same app had it not been a part of Facebook. Like, are you just going to throw away all that sort of investment and effort? And more broadly, to go back to our bigger point, I worry that the impact on the ecosystem broadly is actually similar to banning them, where folks get more worried about investing, more worried about building startups that might be acquired because it might get undone in the long run. And so you're going to end up with... Sort of the worst of all worlds it's really interesting so i agree with you
1: in terms of like creating a retroactive and like damage to ecosystem on the other hand i think about a lot of the antitrust law that exists in the us and to some extent it is retroactively going back and changing things now when you say undo the merger obviously the devil's in the details But I wonder if a force split in the same way that AT&T was forced to split up. Like there were a whole series of acquisitions around the country to create this mega telco, but it was determined that it wasn't in the public interest. And so you break these things up and you start to have them compete. I assume you would give the shares to the existing shareholders. It's just more of a create competition. And yeah, of course, Instagram would not be in the position that it's in right now. I just, I worry. So I'm with you 100% on the points you said earlier on the impact of the ecosystem. And you don't want to prevent that ecosystem from drying up. You don't want to prevent these big tech companies from buying these, particularly the smaller players, but even the larger players. But if it then results later on... In a tech company becoming that dominant, in the same way that we have antitrust law to prevent monopolies and abuse of power, and this just—it feels pretty similar. And we talked at the beginning, and I asked you, like, was this predictable? And was it Eric Jackson who wrote that article on Forbes that was incredibly prescient? And your incredibly prescient, like relying on regulators to be incredibly prescient and also trigger friendly enough such that they're willing to stop them on the belief that they're going to be incredibly prescient doesn't feel like the right approach. But maybe the approach that has historically been taken around antitrust is the right thing here
0: where we can kind of maybe carve a middle ground. It's a fair point. And one thing to keep in mind is that like when AT&T was broken up, they were acting uncompetitively. It was like present tense acting uncompetitively. Facebook in particular, it's so interesting because the Facebook Instagram one is sort of the obvious remedy in like Silicon Valley broadly. But Facebook's not... Acting anti-competitively. Facebook is almost completely a walled garden. It's internal to itself. It advertises on its own properties. If anything, it's abandoning its third-party ad network, you know, which I think is a mistake. But I can understand why they're doing it, because actually Google is the one that's uncompetitive as far as third-party advertising goes. And so it's a real sort of challenge here. There's like a double leap in logic. It's not just that, you know, with t oh, we want to spur competition. It's like, no, you're actually doing bad things. So we are going to break you up as a remedy for that. And yes, that breakup sort of follows acquisitions and things on those lines. In this case, it's like, we don't like that you're big and we want to have more advertising consumer space. We're going to break you up, even though you're not actually technically doing anything wrong. Like, I hear your point. It just, at some point, and maybe this is your argument, and maybe this is the argument of critics generally, is we don't want companies to be this large and dominant, even though the internet sort of naturally leads in that direction. And that's fine. But let's be super clear about sort of what our motivations are.
1: Yes. And I think. Just to be clear, and thank you for pointing it out, I'm not saying that Facebook is acting – in a predatory way, in the same way that AT&T did, for example, and was doing bad things. But with the advent, network effects plus aggregators plus internet, with those things changing the equation just by virtue of being big prevents others from coming along and stimmies competition, maybe it's time to think about changing the law on that front. So, point well taken. And yes, I think it's just they are getting so big and it then prevents someone like Snapchat coming along and being able to reach the tail of advertisers that are required to make them as viable.
0: I mean, it's so tough because basically, if you had to choose, if you had to take the extremes, which is allow any and all acquisitions and ban all acquisitions, I'm definitely on the allow any and all end up making a binary choice. The question then is, well, do you trust sort of regulators to have the wisdom and foresight to look forward and make these decisions. And I am increasingly skeptical and probably should have been more skeptical previously. And so that leads to the final option, which you just presented, which is, oh, wait, let's default towards allowing them and the truly problematic ones from a competitive standpoint, we should be able to look backwards. The thing that I'm just stuck on is there's a real bias in this conversation, which is that Instagram is what it is and would be what it is if had this acquisition never happened. And Again, like we just, I think need to be honest about the fact maybe we choose to go in this direction, but we need to be honest about the fact that Facebook did invest a lot in Instagram. Like the entire ad portion of Instagram, Instagram didn't have to build any of that. Facebook did it all. All of these sort of anti-fraud stuff, all of the growth stuff, like Instagram was just a brilliant product, but all of the actual components that went into making it a business, which we just talked about a little bit ago, like we want companies to make big products and then not necessarily have to build a whole business around it. Like Facebook did all the hard work of actually making Instagram a company. And we should at least be cognizant of that and be aware if we're going to go back and undo this, we are basically telling Facebook that all of that massive amount of value that should not be discounted, we are now going to separate from you. And yes, the shareholder is going to keep it. So that is a good point to make. But yeah, it's not like, yeah, I mean, that's the point I would make that we're not nationalizing
1: it. So we're not like, (laughs) we're going to keep Instagram for the US government or something. And I would say that the difference in value between Facebook and Instagram together and Facebook and Instagram as separate is actually most of that value is going to be because they have got effectively a monopoly status whereby they have the advertising market wrapped up for so many players because, oh, this covers enough. And if you start to separate it out, investors are going to value that less because they're not going to be the one and only game in town. There are going to be other games in town. So, I'd almost argue that Facebook or Facebook investors at the time would still keep a tremendous amount of value. It might not be worth as much as it is right now, but that's because is, it's no longer effectively an advertising monopoly.
0: There's a lot of other value destruction as well, though. I mean, does Instagram get to take Facebook's entire advertising monetization engine or do they have to now build their own, right? Like there's a lot of devils in the details here where, I mean, I think what would make sense like Facebook... Like what, what happens there? And if they have to build their own, well, then you're looking at literally years of catch up of having to like a foregone revenue where you sort of rebuild your engine, rebuild your data. It might be worse from a user experience because one of the things that makes Instagram such a pleasure to use is that Facebook has all the gunk in it, right? Facebook keeps not just all the user facing features, but all the sort of like the advertising and data and all that stuff being centered in Facebook lets Instagram be light and easy and easier to use. I think it's a little cavalier to say that on its own, it's going to be fine. Now, again, if I could choose – an outcome. I would like it to be on its own. My only point here is I think it's very easy to sort of overlook a lot of real costs that would be incurred in this sort of approach. You are doing an excellent job, as always, my friend, of
1: calling me out on waving my magic wand of the government will fix this. And I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and pointing out these hard, devil in details questions is exactly the right level of the conversation to have. I don't necessarily know that I have the answer. I I feel like even with these hard questions, it feels like the least bad option. It's certainly not problem free, that's for sure.
0: <sighs> See, yeah, that's what I'm not sure about. Like we have a ecosystem that, yes, not perfect, but by and large works really well to create new companies, to create new products, to diffuse them to literally billions of people. Like, what's our best case outcome? Our best case outcome is easy to think about. Our best case outcome is Instagram split off. We are retroactively go back. We spur a lot more competition and modularization in the consumer ad market. That inspires new companies to come along. Like, that would be great. What's the worst case outcome? The worst case outcome is that we actually ossify into a situation where we have these few dominant tech companies and their innovation slows down dramatically and their sort of new features and going to market slows down dramatically because the natural sort of new blood starts to dry out, starts to be less interesting, less attractive because of fear, a justifiable fear of regulatory invention that's very, value destructive.
1: But I mean, that's the argument of this is like a fear of taxes when you're super successful. I don't think this is going to to be enough such that it prevents companies from pursuing strategies that are going to make them successful. It's just if they end up being so successful that they end up in a market dominant position, regulators in that very limited circumstance can go back and undo some of these things. Like, you know, it's like the argument you pay high tax rates when your company makes a billion dollars. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to make a billion dollars because I'm going to have to pay tax. And I think it would be the same thing here. I don't think that. Even with the possibility that the companies could be split apart if they end up in market dominant positions, that would stop Mark Zuckerberg or any other entrepreneur who's like cold-blooded about this stuff from wanting to achieve market dominant position. Like They might put some window dressing up to try and prevent action, or maybe they might have some more friendly policies to enable more competition to exist. But I don't think even with this law, if we wound
0: back the clock, Facebook would do anything differently. Here's the issue, though. If there is an acquisition you want to undo because you want more competition in the advertising market, it's not Instagram, it's DoubleClick. And there, Google actually is abusive. Like Google, I think they recently just stopped doing this. They had this idea called last look bidding. Or I can't remember if that's quite the right term. But the idea was they would have an auction for an advertising opportunity. They would sometimes win that auction, sometimes lose that auction. But then once the auction was finished, Google, as the platform provider for this advertising, would take a look at what the winning price was. Take a look at the customer and say, hmm, actually, that customer is more valuable or this company must have information about that customer. That means they're worth more than we thought they were. And they would effectively steal data from other companies like Facebook because they controlled the process. Super abusive. It was a big acquisition that let Google extend their dominance from their own properties to the web as a whole. No one's talking about it. Yeah, I mean... Why aren't they talking about it? Because Facebook is a big political thing. It scores you political points to talk about Facebook. Here's the question. The evidence of that suggests that regulators are motivated not by fixing the market, but by politics. And do we want regulators motivated by politics messing up an ecosystem that, yes... Has failures like the Instagram acquisition in the first place, but by and large is by far the best producer of new companies, new wealth, new businesses in the US. It's a completely reasonable point. I would say that we want
1: to start talking about double click and we want to start making sure that this is equally applied for the benefit of the ecosystem as opposed to just playing
0: politics as opposed to not do anything at all. Right, but this is like this fantasy world of thinking about the best possible outcome and not looking at the world as it actually is and as it's actually being experienced. I'm guilty of this. To me, that ditch was my fantasy world. It's like, oh, where we have these you know, enlightened regulators that can discern which acquisitions are good and which aren't, and they should have undone this. It's like, wait, let me wake up to the world we're actually in. And given that, what should we do? 100%.
1: I'm with you in terms of not being in fantasy land, which is why I don't think they should be making it at the time. I guess if we were to try and boil down the argument, so no argument about do it at the time, like asking regulators to try and predict it, bad idea. No argument about looking at these $90 million, $100 million acquisitions. Bad idea. Should leave it alone. The question becomes, is the cost of leaving these things together and having predatory behavior, whether explicitly done or just monopolistic behavior, because one of these big companies dominates a space, is the benefit of fixing that and the risks associated with that worth it versus just leaving things completely as they are and taking a as a laissez-faire approach. To be fair, as always, you're doing an excellent job of making me question it and making me concerned about it, which is what you should be. And I wish more regulators were and more policymakers were before they pulled the levers of unintended consequences, as they so often do. I'm still like, if we can try to limit it such that it's really these big ones that really have this effect, and maybe we can quantify it somehow, I really do think there's benefit in terms of creating more competition. at at this end of the market.
0: Yeah, I absolutely your point of view. So I think we've done a
1: pretty good job of- of tasting of, out the difference, right?
0: Yeah, it, it, I think like we both share the same goals. We both can see the best possible outcome. I think we can both see the worst possible outcome. And it's more sort of like, which risk do you want to take? Do you want to take the risk that you don't achieve the best possible outcome? Or do you want to take the risk that you avoid the worst possible outcome? Yes. And I think that the shift that I've sort of gone through is- like this FTC investigation is wild. Like there's so many things to investigate in tech. Sub $100 million acquisitions are not it. And it really made me question like, wait, are these the folks we want making these sorts of decisions? And it sort of like jarred me into like going on the opposite side. I see your side. I think our readers hopefully see both sides. And that's, uh, I guess, as much as we can hope for.
1: Yeah. And honestly, maybe hoping that people who are making decisions like this and writing the policy had a few more conversations like this, because like that's the nature of the oppositional democratic system is like different people have different points of view and they respect it enough to come together and listen and appreciate that. And I I just wish that happened a little bit more often.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the good thing is I do think they're listening. And that's why we talk about this, even though it gets maybe boring and tiring sometimes, like this stuff matters. It will matter not just now, but sort of going forward. And that's all we can do. Well, I'm not bored of it yet.
1: And if any of our listeners are not bored of hearing your voice and want to hear it like four more times a week, now they have the option to do that.
0: Yeah, I, I'm looking at a tweet right now or something complaining that like Exponent is much more conversational and that sounds like I'm reading a script. That's because I'm literally reading a script. <laughs> like, just, <laughs> just to be clear, it's not Exponent. It is me reading the daily update. If you don't want a, time to read it, you can listen to it and no promises other than that. Very good. Well, congrats again. No small thing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh yeah, I look forward to talking again soon. Sounds good. See you, mate. All right. Bye-bye.